This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. And what we saw in chapter 1 was really the foundation to the entire rest of the letter to Hebrews. We know chapter delineations came later. Uh, they weren't necessarily Holy Spirit inspired. So this was supposed to be read as one continual thought. And in chapter 1, uh, the author speaks about the, the deity of Christ. Let's right out of the gate, uh, let's, let's put this on the table, let's set the foundation. Jesus is God. He goes through the Old Testament. He gives many uh, proofs that, of the deity of Christ, and that's where he builds that foundation. Uh, in chapter 2, which is pretty amazing, is he speaks about Christ's humanity. Now, this is impressive because, well, when we look at the Gospels, we see Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's the Christology. Uh, but as we go through Hebrews chapter 2, it really focuses on his humanity and why that was important. Some get the erroneous idea that well, Jesus was God, and that's so awesome. And poor Jesus, he had to be in a man's body, and it was such a, a sentence to him, and it's just such a difficulty, fraught with problems. But the truth is, if you really understand who Christ is, he had to be both. So actually, what we're going to learn about this morning is some things that maybe uh, some don't know, that it was very important that he had to take the form of a man. It wasn't a punishment to him, but it was for our benefit, and there was rules of redemption of why he had to be a man. Now, uh, you know, to the Jewish mind, initially it's written to the Hebrew Christians. Uh, the prophets are important. The angels were important. So the author of Hebrews has to make sure they understand why Christ was superior to those positions. Uh, and I'm going to go back and forth between them and us. There were issues facing this community. However, 2,000 years later, we can also take the information that was given to that community and, pl and apply it to ourselves 2,000 years later. So we're going to jump in. In verse 1, he says, therefore, it's a connecting word, we must give the more earnest heed or all the more careful attention to the things we have heard, lest for fear that we drift away. So therefore, therefore what? Based on what we heard in chapter 1, the deity of Christ, the response is what? Not to drift, but give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard. Now, today is Greek lexicon day. I went into my Greek, uh, and, and it just the Lord just gives me a sense. Go look at some of these words. Let's parse them. So I opened up my Greek Bible, and I said, well, what does it say in the Greek? And let me, let me look at some of the um, synonyms. And some of the synonyms have even more flavor than what we read in the English. So I, I went back, and we're going to do that a few, th a few times. To give the more earnest heed can also mean to hold the mind or to apply oneself. I like that, to hold the mind. Now, if you think that because I'm the pastor, I'm this great bastion of focusing my attention on my studies, you're wrong. My wife will tell me, I'll say, listen, I'm going downstairs to my office and I get on the computer and I got my books out and I'm going to study. Five minutes later, I'm upstairs getting a drink. I go downstairs, I'm studying again. Ten minutes later, I'm upstairs eating a cookie. She goes, go downstairs and study. <laughs> Now, the reason why I can hold my mind and hold my attention, part of it is fear. The fear that on a Sunday morning, I'm going to stand up in front of you and have nothing to say. <laughs> so I go back and I apply myself. But you've heard that. You know, if you've heard that, if you had a teacher who cared about you, they might have said, you know, you're so smart, why don't you just apply yourself? If you had a coach who was concerned about you and you had an aptitude for sports, why don't you just apply yourself? Why don't you try harder? And we'll apply ourselves and give effort to so many things. 
We'll know our favorite sports teams and all their stats. We'll know the best, best place to go shopping for this line of clothing. You know, we'll know the intricacies and the, you know, the micrometer settings to a small block Chevy and with the pistons and the rings and all that kind of jazz. But the most important thing is to apply ourselves to the things of God, to hold the mind and pay attention, especially because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now, the word drifting... I looked it up. It means to carelessly pass or to let slip. So these are nice things. You know, hey, we're human. We're fallible. We make mistakes. Hey, Lord, it was careless. I just let it slip. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't hold my mind. These are not harsh things that we say to the Lord. Lord, I hate you. I'm not following you anymore. I'm going to blaspheme you. This is minor stuff. Hey, cut me some slack. But I'll tell you this that I've seen more damage in the life of Christians and Christian marriages over subtle things, over being lost off a little bit than major sins. Sometimes major sins, Christian commits a major sin, they're really heavy, they're convicted like David, they're, they're repenting, and then they just really get back and they're on fire for God. But Satan also works in the other direction. These little subtle careless, I let it slip, no big deal, I'm human, I have faults, and we kind of go into that, that idea. See, this is the thing about the faith that we are in. It's dynamic, it's not static. If we're not moving forward, we're stagnating, we're drifting, we're going backwards. There's no neutrality in this faith. We have a dynamic faith. It gets better, it gets better. Verse 2, he says, for if the word spoken or the law or what God gave us, you know, looking back to the Old Testament, through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received the just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. This is powerful. In other words, the law was great. You know, the word came in the Old Testament. It was wonderful. Oftentimes through ministration by angels. However, every sin that was committed, whether it was a sin, he says right here, of transgression, to, to trans, to go across, we willingly violated one of God's laws, a sin of commission. We always think of those, but we forget about the sins of omission. He says, every transgression and every disobedience, ah, oh, I should have done something, but I didn't. That's a sin of omission. Based on the law was given a reward. Actually, that word means a punishment or a consequence. If we do good, there's consequences. If we do evil, the Bible says there's consequences as well, including ignoring God. He says, now we have something better. We have salvation announced by God, officiated and performed by, by God by laying down his life for us, confirmed by human witnesses as well as God's miracles and the Holy Spirit involvement. I mean, he just, God put out all the stops. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they were all involved in this. You know, even angels were involved. Everybody was involved that you could imagine. Right, things were revealed to us. This is big. Notwithstanding, how do we think we can escape the consequences if we neglect it? Now, to the Hebrew Christians, let's look at them, and then let's go to us. Hey, they were being persecuted. Their families were on their backs. You're Jewish. How could you be Christian? 
Jewish people face that today. Again, the first Christians were Jews. It's just different where we are in our society. They were being persecuted by the Roman government. They started to turn on the Christians. And the Hebrew believers started to go back to temple sacrifices, going back to things that were safe, practicing Judaism. And this was a problem because if you go back to the law, you're judged by the law. That's what the law did in the Old Testament. It said you violated God's precepts. You cannot be in his presence when you die, period. Jesus came through the law. He kept the law so that we wouldn't be punished by the law. He took the law's punishment for our sins on the cross. So what does it say about us if we neglect our salvation? If we take it lightly, eh, yawn. Pastor says every Sunday Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, I've heard that. Tell me something new. Really? We're instructed against, number one, drifting, and number two, neglecting. Neglecting meaning to be careless or to make light of. Question is, are we, are we cultural Christians or are we the real deal? If we got on a plane and went to Egypt started hanging out with the Coptic Christians, those people are fighting for their lives in Egypt. The whole government has changed. It's turned on them. It's serious business over there. Uh, they don't have time to fool around with silly things. They're just basically trying to hold on to their faith and hold on to their lives. Here, it's a different story. Because drifting leads to neglecting. And you know what happens when we neglect? Prayer and the Word aren't that important anymore. I know those that are in denominations or have uh, dealt with different churches that uh, they have potlucks, they have um, events, they have all kinds of eating festivities, but prayer in the Word is not part of it. Now, I like all those, trust me. However, if prayer in the Word is not a staple of it, it's just a social club. So, what does that say? Church is seen as a place to play hooky from. Right? When you start neglecting and we start drifting, hey, it's a beautiful Sunday morning. Look, it's 80 degrees, the sun is out. Hey, let's skip church today. Let's play hooky. Really? Is it, is it that much of a draw? Is it that much of a, a bore? Is it that much of a chore? Is that what I meant to say? Serving goes out the window and forget about assembling with the brothers and sisters. The author of Hebrews is going to speak about that later. The truth is that it's almost as if, now we would never say this because it would be ridiculous, but it's almost as if we say to God, you know, God, you and I, let's take a break for a while. Kind of like one of them flighty relationships. Summer's here, it's got a lot to offer me, and, uh, you know, I don't really want to get into heady stuff, and I don't want to be indoors, so, Lord, how about we take a break, see other people, and uh, in late September, we'll hook up again. Let's do that. Now, who would say that? Nobody, because it's stupid. But do we do it with our actions? We don't have to say things. We can say things by the way we do things. And this is what happens when we neglect. It isn't just the Hebrew believers. Now, most of us in this room will never commit. This is a pretty good-sized uh, congregation here. No, we'll never commit murder. We'll never commit adultery. However, over the course of our lives, we can be totally and completely useless for the things of God. God says, well, Joe, he's just so resistant, I can't use him. Bob, he's just so resistant, I just can't use him. He's just fighting me at every turn. Okay, have what you want, enjoy. Satan, it takes a lot for him to get a Christian to commit one of the big sins. 
but it's easy for him to subtly get a Christian off course. Now, I've been shooting for over 20 years, uh, mostly handguns and rifle and shotguns, and I will tell you that what's called the weapon retention position, when you're one yard away from the target, weapon retention is, you know, you just get it out real quickly and you fire it. And I can be sloppy. I could be sloppy. Whatever, I'm going to hit the paper because it's right in front of me. When I go back 15 yards, when I go back 25 yards, my breathing has to be a certain way. Breathe in, breathe out, squeeze the trigger uniformly, consistently, pop, fire it off. If I'm a few millimeters off because of my breathing or because I anticipate the shot, I may not hit the target 25 yards downrange. And Christians, we can be a few millimeters off. And Satan can get us to believe that it's okay. It's just a few millimeters. One day we find ourselves out in an ocean of the world, floating and drifting, and there's nothing solid to hold on to. That's what Satan wants to do to us. Now, over the course of the past few weeks, I've been blessed by some coming up to me and saying, I feel like I'm drifting. I feel like I'm neglecting. It's just where we are in Scripture. Isn't that awesome? And, you know, show a lot of grace, show a lot of compassion. They're still here. However, on the Sunday morning, there's got to be conviction. When we come together corporately, there has to be conviction because you can't teach this monotone. It's a disservice to God. Now, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you because, you know, it's, 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 it is what it is in the Scripture. It's where we are. We also miss the blessings of God. You see, when we're not close to him, every relationship has its benefits. Every relationship that you have on earth with another person has some type of benefit. It's the beauty of relationships. You give, you receive. You give and you receive. Well, it's the same thing with God. Do we think we can just diss him, ignore him, um, be a poor example, and he's just going to shower us with blessings? No. It doesn't work like that. So I want to encourage us this morning in that when we neglect and we drift, we also miss the blessings of God. And people will come to me and say, I just feel like I'm, I'm off. I'm, I'm out of his will. I just feel stagnant. I feel dry. I feel... And all these different terminology comes out because we're, we're missing the blessings of God as well. We're missing that protection. We're missing that comfort. You know, he's our father. Father's Day, right? Father every day. Verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels, or, alternate translation, for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that... He put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Now from this point to the rest of the chapter, what we're really going to look at is the comparison between the angels, which the Jewish people revered highly, and Christ's humanity and how Christ's humanity was actually greater than the angels. So whereas chapter 1 dealt with Christ's deity, this deals with Christ's humanity, the full picture of Christology. Now we're going to look at four reasons why Christ as a man was greater than the angels. So the first one, Christ as a man or the last Adam, Adam was the first Adam, he was the first in creation. When Jesus took the form of the man, he, was, he became the last Adam according to scripture. 
Jesus enabled, the, the, taking humanity enabled Jesus to regain possession of and creation which mankind lost due to sin. Now the angels could not do that. Try, try as they may, it's just not going to work. So what he says here is God hasn't put the world to come or the world we presently live in in subjection to angels. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that we will later reign. It'll be a different dispensation. 1 Corinthians 6, and, and I taught this, and I don't suspect, I don't say that I knew exactly what the Apostle Paul was speaking about in this particular scripture, but he says, he's talking about Christians who are always fighting with each other, taking each other to court, just stupid stuff that Christians do. And then he says, don't you know, you're going into human courts. These guys, these judges aren't even believers. And you're sitting under them and they're, they're deciding your cases. Can't you figure this stuff out in the court? I mean, he really rebukes them. And he says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he goes, don't you realize that we will judge angels? Wow, eye-opener to the Corinthian believers. So, you know, Christ's humanity, better than the angels. Here's the problem. Through man's sin, man lost dominion over the planet. However, God solved the problem instead of eliminating the problem. Instead of eliminating the human race and saying, you know, I'm going to make a race that's a little bit more agreeable to being obedient because these guys, they're just, human beings are just stubborn. Instead of doing that, he solved the problem. He became man to redeem man. If you look at the book of Ruth, which is a great book, uh, understanding really Christ through the idea of the kinsman redeemer, right? that, that familial line that person who, who was able to regain the lost possessions uh, to marry the wife or the widow because they were a near kinsman, near relationship, redeemer. Jesus became a man. He, became, he came into our bloodline so that he could redeem us and fix what Adam messed up. Now, I'm just going to liken it to this. This is my example. You liken Adam to a, a military guy who they send him on a mission and he goes. He fails his mission he gets captured by the enemy, and now he's sentenced to his whole life in a slave labor camp. And his slave, he was a slave to sin. Jesus comes, okay? He's from the same unit, but Jesus is special forces, right? So they say to Jesus, Adam really messed up. I mean, he's in, in that halfway across the world in that slave labor camp. This is your mission. You have to save Adam. <laughs> You've got to free him from the enemy. And then you've got to complete the mission that Adam messed up. Tall order. So Jesus comes. He finds Adam. He frees him from his sin of slavery. He binds up his wounds. He takes out the enemy. He puts Adam over his shoulders, and he finishes the mission. That's what Jesus did. That, you know, and, and it's been explained different ways, but it's just what I thought of. Let's go back to the text here. Um, if you're looking at verses 6 through 8, it's italicized, which means it comes from somewhere else. It actually comes from Psalm 8. It's a musing, not amusing, but a musing, two words. In other words, God, what's the concern over man? Why are you mindful of man? Why do you care? You know, look in the Old Testament, look at the, the monarchies. There was so much bloodshed. There was so much war. There was so much jealousy, so much hatred. And, and the psalmist, David, goes, why, Lord? Why do you care about us? We're just such a mess down here. But you know what? Meditate on that today. Some people, maybe in this room, tend to be a little hard on themselves, tend to not forgive themselves when God has already forgiven you. What is, what is Joe that you're mindful of him? What is, uh, you know, 
Tommy, that you're mindful of him? What is John, that you're mindful of him? Rose or whoever. He just loves us. He created us. He gave us feelings. He gave us the ability to have relationship. He gave us the ability to love him and to have a relationship with him. I don't know. It's the big mystery. It's the big question. Why do you care about us, Lord? But I want you to meditate on that this morning. If you came in here feeling a little down, God is mindful of you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. If you were the only person on planet Earth, he would have still sent him to die for you. I really believe that. What's amazing is a few things. Number one, we can see a reference to man. You can see the, the transition here. And then he speaks about the son of man. So you can see a reference to man, and you can see a reference to Jesus finishing the job. So in other words, being a man or a woman, for us, we're less powerful than the angels, but we're the object of God's affection. Now, when Jesus became a man, he fulfilled both of these. Number one, he was for a little while lower than the angels, taking the form of a man. So in other words, he spent roughly 33 years on this earth, and then he was crucified and went back to be in glory where he was before he came to the earth. So for 33 years, do a little um, fractions today, 33 line eternity. That's a little while. That's a speck. So number one, he was a little while lower than the angels. Number two, he was, alternate translation, for a little while. For, no, a little lower than the angels. In other words, when Jesus became man, he divested himself of a lot of his godly attributes. He wasn't omnipresent anymore. He needed to sleep. He needed to eat. He felt physical pain. So in a sense, he was a little lower than the angels. Again, but for a little while. We leave off here with verse 8. In mankind having great potential and great dominion and great honor, but forfeiting it due to sin. And now we don't see all things under his feet. Man lost it. Christ regained it. He fixed it. We have a down payment. The Holy Spirit... We know that once we've believed in him, we pass from death unto life. We don't really see the effects of that right now. But the full effects will be felt later on at a time that God decides to, um, you know, to do that. You know, to bring his kingdom. And, and, he, and he reigns from his kingdom. So, so we'll see that in the future. Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are of all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God calling us brethren. Saying, again this comes from the Old Testament, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So the second thing, the second out of four, that we see here is that Christ as a man enabled enabled he ena it enabled him his humanity to bring the sons to glory to undo the effacement of sins now, this is something the angels couldn't do 
Remember, we were made in God's image, but our, our image of, as human beings has been effaced because we don't act like God. The only thing that gave us any other personal honor and glory that could, that could be brought back was the fact that when we believe in Jesus and we try to emulate him, and he took our sins on the cross and we try to take his character, it's, we did a switch of identities, it's the only time that identity theft is good, right? When we stole Christ's identity. <clears throat> when God looks at us and we're under the blood of Christ, he sees his son. He sees perfection. He sees us without sin. So the first part, Jesus regained mankind's possessions, what we lost. Here, it shows Jesus regaining the honor that we lost due to the effacement of sin. Verse 9, it says, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor for suffering of death, what he accomplished at the cross. Remember this, Jesus tasted death. He died physically as a man. You can't kill God, of course, but his humanity died. But he also tasted spiritual death and that he bore our sins, which would have condemned us to hell. So he tasted both deaths so that we wouldn't have to taste either. Pretty impressive. And that was the grace of God. Was it the grace towards Jesus? No. Nothing gracious about Jesus being on the cross. But it was the grace towards you and I. All right? Verse 10. It said that to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings, the author can also be translated captain or chief leader. So how do you make Jesus perfect? That's unusual. Well, if you look at that word, it also can mean complete or accomplish. See, most of us have goals that we want to accomplish. Right in this very room, if you really think about it, you might be working on a degree. You might be working on a promotion. You might be working on being a great parent. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. On expecting, you know, you're newly married, you're expecting children. Uh, if it's a God-centered goal, it's even better. You have these great ideas of what you want for yourself, your accomplishments and your goals. What did Jesus want? He wanted all of us to go to heaven. Everyone in this room, everyone listening on the CD, everyone listening on the website, everyone in the world. That was his big goal in life. And he accomplished it by dying for our sins. It's just up to us now if we'll take of it. It's a free gift, ready to be taken. Now, he had to become a man and take this road of suffering to become this perfect sacrifice for our sins. What we're going to get into now is what, what I would call rules of redemption. You know, God made a bunch of rules. He made the law. You can't murder. You can't lie about people. You can't steal. Uh, if you've done that, you've broken that perfection that God expects because he's perfect. So he had to figure out a way now to save us because we blew it. So there's rules. God can't just wave his hand and say, okay, I don't, you know, forget about those laws. Why don't we just, you know, throw it in the garbage, in the waste paper basket. Let's make the laws easier because you people are stubborn. You know, let's try this again. Take two. He can't do that. He's made laws. God can't lie. God can't go back on himself, right? God can't be destroyed. There's certain things God can't do. So what he had to do is he had to find out a way to preserve his law and to redeem us, but there had to be rules for redemption. Jesus had to be a near kinsman. He had to come in the form of a man. 
somebody had to pay for all those laws that were broken of God because he is a just God. He is a just judge. We can't just say, well, just, don't, just look the other way, Lord. Just don't pay attention. Don't watch what I'm doing right now. So Jesus, as our chief leader, as our captain, as the author of our salvation, was the one through these rules of redemption. Do you realize how much Jesus did for us? Sometimes we say, oh, Jesus was on the cross. Look, I, I wear it on my, on my necklace or whatever. It wasn't that simple. He went through a lot to redeem us. It's, it's, very, it's, compl it's complex, not necessarily complicated, but complex. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. How could that be? The sanctifier and the sanctifiee are of one. Now, the sanctification process is something, it's a big word, but it's simple. It just means that what happens is we believe in Jesus, we're justified. We're declared just and righteous because Jesus took our punishment. Now there's a sanctification process which means we become more like him over time, which is an awesome thing. You meet a, a believer for 20, 30 years, if they're really walking right, there's a glow on them, man, I'll tell you. Um, there's a, a gentleman all the way in the back who's like a spiritual dad to me. I'll just say Sam Turner. And this guy, you know, he's got Jesus all over his face. You talk to this man, you, you spend any time with him and his wife, all the things they've been through, they're, they're sanctified people. They're still sinners, but they're sanctified. And that's a beautiful thing. However, we never achieve the, the status of Jesus Christ, but we get sanctified and he's the one who does the sanctifying. And because we look more like Jesus, we're adopted into his family. That's impressive. So, in, in Psalm 22 and repeated here in Hebrews 2, he says, Jesus says, I will declare your name, the Father's name, to my brethren. He calls us brothers. And in the second part of verse 13, he says, Here am I in the children whom God has given me. Again, there's a contextual issue, contextual issue in Isaiah 8. However, it's also referring to this in a prophetic sense. So by sanctification, we become brothers. By God drawing us unto him, we become his children. I mean, how, how much closer do you get there? The bride of Christ, we're his bride and, and he's our groom. There's not much more ways that we can explain it in our, in our piddly little language to show how close God wants us to be to him. You ever, you ever deal with somebody, you have a relationship with somebody and they kind of hold you at an arm's distance? We all have. Maybe a friend, maybe a parent, maybe somebody who, they're a frenemy. You know, they can, <laughs> they're supposed to be friends, but they're always competing with you. And they don't let you get too close. That's a weird relationship. I cut off frenemies. I don't, just don't need that weirdness in my life. But God says there is, no, there is no personal space. He wants you in his personal space. And, and he's the only one that you can come that close without being hurt. So keep that in mind. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. We'll get to him. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Third point, Christ as a man was able to defeat Satan and deliver mankind from death 
sorrow, and fear. Angels could not do that. You know, could they encourage people and, and you know, appear and they're so cool to look at and, and they sing a song or whatever they do and you're like, wow, I saw an angel and you feel really good. But it's short-lived. It's not going to last long. They can't hang out with you and, you know, walk you to school and all that. And so they were unable to do what Jesus could do here. In verse 14, it said the devil had the power of death. Now understand, the devil's power, let's not give him too much credit here, it's bound up in his ability to tempt. Adam and Eve were tempted. Temptation leads to what? Sin. Sin leads to what? Death. Death leads to what? Judgment. Boom, 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 and it happens like a snowball. What Jesus did was he stopped the process. No. He put the guide on in the ground and said, that's it. I'm stopping this. He went to the cross to stop it. No more. Remember, the picture of Satan being the king of hell with the pitchfork and uh, he's waiting for the elevator and all the, uh, all the dictators, it opens up, they all come in and he, he pokes them and makes them do stuff. It's not scriptural. Satan is going to suffer just as much as everybody else is suffering. He's going to be trying to hold his own in the lake of fire. He's not going to be anybody's boss or bully. He's going to be punished for eternity. So there's a sobering picture there. The only thing Satan has power now is because he can tempt us. And unfortunately, we willingly jumped into it instead of taking the way out, as 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, because there's always a way out. Verse 15, Jesus came to set free those in slavery to fear of death, which causes a host of other problems in life. Now, for some, fear is a, is a prison sentence. And I'll tell you what, cults do very well in the United States because, because we're Americans and we can choose and we're free and we were born free and all that jazz. And uh, the cults will kind of give you a smorgasbord. You don't want to believe Jesus is God? We got something for you over here. You don't want to believe that your personal lifestyle is important to God? We got something for you over here. It's this table. There's, there's just a whole line of tables. You can pick the religion you want. And sometimes religion is associated with fear. Think about it. In some religions, you do something wrong. You've got to repeat prayers or a mantra, right? Or something else happened and I've got to take these steps to write. It's almost like OCD. You assuage your fears and you did something wrong and God's going to be mad so the religious people make you do a bunch of stuff so you feel like you're working it off. That's not what God has for us. It's relationship. It's more of God is that just awesome father. And when the kids are picking on you and they're bullying on you and, and people are getting on you, God says, come over here, sit on my lap. Here, let me hug you. You feel better now? Yeah, Dad. All right. That's that picture, that relationship. That's what gets rid of our fears. God's like, you see the devil over there? Where do you see him later in his real form and where do you see him in judgment? Don't be afraid of him. I got it all under control. So... Perfect love casts out all fear, the Bible says. And I want to say this to you as well. If you are struggling with that and you've been a Christian for some time, talk to someone. Have somebody pray for you. You know, because you you, cause God delivered you from that. You don't have to be dealing with it. You know, when I was young and was, even as a young person, um, I, I had the fear of death and, and you know, the, what would happen after you die. And a lot of people think those thoughts. Once I started reading the Bible and understanding and the Holy Spirit sealed me, I don't, I'm not afraid anymore. You know? And um, 
I, I see this too at funerals. There, there are some that come in, you know, there's a funeral, a viewing, and then the service, and they're just barely holding it together. And then once they leave the funeral parlor, it's like something happens and they suppress those feelings. Maybe in, until they're laying it in bed at night and they're staring at the ceiling and it's quiet and they start to surface again. And then maybe they need a sleeping pill or something to suppress those fears again. And it's this constant cycle of the fears rise up at an opportune time and then you, you're suppressing them. And this constant, that's torture. When you're in the Lord, you don't have to be afraid anymore. God's taking care of that for you. Verse 16, it says, The Lord didn't come to aid angels, but the seed of Abraham. Now, some of you may say, well, listen, I'm not a Jewish believer, so how does that affect me? I'm glad you asked that question. In Genesis 12, it says that through the Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So even the non-Jewish line. In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul says that the Gentiles were grafted in to the, to the olive branch. So in a sense, through faith, we are all the seed of Abraham. Isn't that nice? So that applies to everybody here. First, or if, you, if you're in Christ. Verse 17, last two verses. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted or tested, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So the fourth and last point for this morning is that Christ as a man, his humanity enabled him to become a sympathetic high priest to us. Again, angels were unable to do that. So just, I want you to really appreciate, I want me to appreciate too, as I'm studying this, I'm like, man, this, Jesus had to go through a lot to redeem me, didn't he? all the different twists and turns, all the, the suffering that he went through, all the abuse that he took, right? all the you know, taking of our sins. He didn't, he didn't just wave his hand. They, God could do a lot of miracles, but he couldn't undo what he had already established. That decree was already made. And propitiation is just the word that means to, to appease somebody for, for a wrong. You know, basically, the Lord's sacrifice was a propitiation to God uh, so that it is finished they can now enter into the kingdom because I, I took care of it on the cross. In verse 18, it ends on a powerful note. Jesus suffered, endured trials and temptation. Remember, the devil tempted him at his most weakest point in his humanity. In addition to dying for our sins, he's the God who became like his creation so that he can completely understand us. And I'll say this. In our deepest, darkest moments, and for some listening, you might say, there's not a person in the world that I can trust completely. There's not a person in the world that I can say everything, not even my spouse. It, it happens at times. In your deepest, darkest moments, remember that Jesus became like us so he could understand us. So I can say with full assurance I'm a little strange, ask my wife. I can say that Jesus understands me. He gets me. You know, when, when I really mess up and I hurt somebody's feelings and I didn't mean to and I can't express to them that I really didn't mean that, it just was a slip of the tongue where I said something stupid. Jesus understands me. He goes, I know what you were trying to say. I know you talked too fast and he came out and that was really stupid. Try to slow down in your speaking. But he understands me. 
He understands every single person in this room. If you're a teenager and you're going through things and there's difficulties, you feel, I haven't even told my parents this. He understands you. If you've really blown it big time and you're on yourself and I can't tell anybody the depths of what I did, I'm carrying this secret. Jesus understands you. It's funny, even with all the false gods, the Greek and the Roman pantheon and all the different gods they made for beauty and for the sea and for the fertility and all this stuff, they never, they never made a false god, even out of their own imagination, that completely understood them. They were always harsh. They were always mean. They always made them do some type of service. But the true God is the one that completely gets us. So we started on a convicting note, but we ended up on an encouraging note. God understands me. Knowing that's the case, why would we ever drift away from him? Why would we want to drift away from him? especially given so many reasons this morning. The title of today's message is Adrift or Adroit. The truth is, we're either drifting away and neglecting God, neglecting our salvation, neglecting the wonderful things He's done for us, or we're adroitly negotiating this life and this faith because we're close to God, because we're in His personal space. Because that's where he wants us. And that's where we feel comfortable. As the psalmist said, in the shadow of his wings. God doesn't have feathers like a bird, but that was the imagery that the psalmist could come up to. You know, this, this comforting, this insulative effect, this sheltering effect. God went through so much to save us. And now he wants to bless us. But we can't receive the full blessings unless we're close to him. The Hebrew Christians needed to be shown why it was dangerous to turn from their relationship because of persecution. The United States might be just the opposite. We might be, and we might have to learn why it's dangerous to turn because of the land of plenty, because of opportunities, because of distractions. Jesus in Revelation, and I love this, I brought this up last Sunday, he the seven churches, there were two that the churches were really on fire. He really didn't have anything negative to say to them. But the five, he speaks to the seven churches. He would always say to them, listen, I know the great things you're doing. I know that you've done this and I know that you've done that. But you've left your first love. Me, I'm over here. It's just a building filled with people now. And, and I'm not in that building anymore. I stand at the door and knock. Let me in. I want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to be a part of your fellowship. That's what I designed, but I'm not anymore. He says, go back to where, where you have fallen. Where you, and, and I would encourage everyone this morning. I do that too. I run ahead of him and I'm like, something's missing. Yeah, it's the Lord. Lord, where did I leave you? This decision that I made, I didn't pray enough about it. Lord, I, I really blew the situation, but you know, I, I thought that I could do it without you. We all, we all do this. We leave him somewhere behind a few paces. And what does he say? He says, go back to where you have fallen. And he doesn't say, you idiot, you stupid. Like, people do that to us. I'm going to smack you and kick you. He says, go back to where you have fallen. You know, get back with me. Let's do this over again. He's such a merciful God. Hebrews 2. My prayer this morning is that we, after reading this, and we leave this place, that we're charged up to not want to neglect him, but to be close to him and to recommit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, 
we thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to us, Lord. And maybe sometimes we're a little, a little shy to open up because depending on our circumstances, we may have had relationships that hurt us. And we walk around with this wall, with this, I don't want anybody in my personal space. Don't get, to, don't, don't get too close. We smile and we, we do the do and we say nice things, but maybe we're really lonely inside.